everyone, and welcome to the Inclusion Podcast. This is episode 10, and today we're going to be talking about the myths of special education. And I am here today with someone who inspires me often around the concept of inclusive education. And this person is named Pat Radel, and he is a lawyer, a practicing lawyer, and he does work often with students with disabilities in his practice. And his work is inspired by his son, Mark, who is a person with a disability. And he has three boys, is in upstate New York, and has a lovely wife, Mary, who I've had the pleasure to work with also. So welcome, Pat. I'm so excited that you're here. It's uh, an honor, Julie. Thanks. Glad to be here. Yeah. So we're going to do this podcast based on 10 myths about special education that Pat has come up with after doing a lot of work in the area of litigation. Sure. So, yeah, thanks again. It's an honor to be here. I, it occurred to me as I, as I started in the work of special education law, there, there, there are a lot of things I thought families had misunderstandings about. Um, and I think also school folks had, had misunderstandings about what the law said, what the rights of students with disabilities were, and what their families were. So I came up with a presentation that I call the 10 myths about special education. Great. So what I would love to do is let our listeners hear about each one of them. And so my plan is to ask you about each of the different myths that you've highlighted. So we're going to start right in with myth number one. So the first myth that I want to talk about is this idea that parents attend the Committee on Special Education, the CSE meeting, but they're not really decision makers. Sure. Yeah, that's definitely a myth. Parents are members of the Committee on Special Education and, in fact, are entitled by law to meaningful participation in the development of the individualized education plan. Um, in fact, one of the things I point out to families is the membership on the Committee on Special Education is defined by law. There are certain required members. And if you look at the statute that defines the required membership of the law, the first people listed are the parents or guardians of a student with disabilities. So when Congress enacted Individuals with Disability Education Act, they wanted to send a very clear message that one of the pillars of the process was that parents were members of the Committee on Special Education and were legally entitled to be meaningful players in the development of the IEP. So it's not just that they come to the meeting, they sit there, they show up, and that the folks at the table tell them how it's going to go. Instead, they're supposed to be participants in actually constructing the document. Absolutely, and if it is, can be shown that the school district made up its mind uh, before speaking to the parents and before having a meeting in the committee, that in itself, that making up of their mind beforehand, is considered a violation of, of federal law. Uh, the parents are entitled and should feel empowered uh, to come to the meeting with their suggestions, with their ideas, with their hopes and dreams and nightmares for their student and should have uh, all the courage to express that to the, the committee and, and make their views known and be meaningful participants in that process. Wow, thank you. So to be clear, what about pre-IEP meetings? So some districts that I work in, they've said things like they've had a pre-IEP meeting prior to having the parent present. How does that work legally? So legally, the school district is entitled to do what they call pre-planning. Okay. So for example, they can look at possible alternative placements. They can prepare a draft IEP. They can do pre-planning, but they are not allowed to engage in predetermination which means they need to come to the meeting with an open mind mm. and a willingness to listen to the input of the parents and any information that the parents might want to bring to the process as mm. well. Okay, that's really important. Thank you, Pat. Let's move on to myth number two. 
So the second myth that I hear all the time is, boy, you know, inclusion is ideal, but it's not really required by law. In fact, a lot of people think it's just kind of a nice to have, but it's not a need to have. And so, Pat, I'd like you to talk about that myth. Sure. I'm going to start this one with a story. Mm -hmm. Uh, One time I arrived about five minutes late to a CSE meeting, and I was annoyed for two reasons. One, although they knew I was coming, they started the meeting without me. Mm -hmm. And two, they were already having a conversation about which of two self-contained settings would be more appropriate for the student. And I said, I'm sorry, did I miss the conversation about general education? Um, because under law, that's where the conversation is supposed to start. Nice. Um, the law creates a presumption in favor of inclusion. And the conversation about uh, self-contained or more restrictive setting under the law is permitted, but that conversation should only begin after the committee has determined that the student cannot make meaningful educational progress mm. in general education with supports and services. So I always advocate for... Um, even for a family that might not be sure that inclusion is what they want for their student, there should at least be a very thoroughgoing, robust conversation about what sorts of supports and services are portable and could be provided to the student in general education. And if there's a sense that the student's not appropriately placed in general education, why? What needs do they have that cannot be met in that setting? And have we are we sure that we've considered all those possible supports, modifications, adaptations, could be provided to the student in general education before we make the decision about uh, which, which of the uh, self-contained settings is most appropriate. So the presumption is we start with inclusive placement first, and then that's where we have we hold every conversation with that idea in mind. I'm thinking about students who have been placed in self-contained classrooms for years on end. Uh, my question is, are we supposed to be considering general education each year, or is that kind of just a permanent placement? No, for every student, every time, the conversation should always begin with, the assumption is this student should should go to the school that he or she would attend if they did not have a disability. So if we are not going to, if we're going to override that assumption, why are we overriding that assumption? How might the student's needs be met in a general education setting, and if we've determined that they can't be, why? What needs and what supports do they need that we cannot provide to them in a general education setting? Um, and that should be, like I said, the conversation, in my view, anytime placement is discussed at any CSE meeting for any student, we, it needs to at least start with the conversation about why not inclusion. Hmm. Thank you, Pat. Myth number three is something that I've heard many times in my career, and that is we would include the student, but they're not on grade level. So students have to be on, the myth is students have to be on grade level in order to be included. Right. That's definitely a myth. The measure of progress for a student with a disability is progress toward his or her IEP goals, Mm -hmm. not progress toward grade level standards. For whatever reason, this comes up a lot for kindergarten students with disabilities. I I get a whole story about how, oh my goodness, kindergarten is so much harder than it used to be. They're reading, (laughs) writing, arithmetic. It's just really, really hard and this student could never keep up. And I always say, you know, I I appreciate that, but that's not the right measure of of progress for this student. The measure of progress here for a student with disability is, Uh, can they make progress toward their IEP goals in that setting? So Mm. I have students with very significant cognitive disabilities that are in high school, ELA classes, math classes, science classes, and you bet, of course they're not trying to 
get a Regents Diploma, but they are finding points of access that allow them to make progress toward their IEP goals in that setting. Um, and the simple fact of the matter is if the price of admission was the ability to make progress and stay on grade level, um, that would close the door to a huge number of students with disabilities. And that is was obviously not the intent of Congress in enacting IDEA. Um, the intent of Congress was to open the door for many more students with disabilities to have access to their rich environment, both in terms of peers and educational materials that can only be found in one place, and that's in the general education classroom. Hmm. Yeah, I love that. And when you mentioned the word access points, I think that's a really big piece of it because a lot of people say, well, this is what we're doing in the general education classroom, so how would it be appropriate if the student wasn't doing the same thing? And so what Pat mentions is these concepts of access points, meaning you can take targeted skills, targeted ideas, and actually work them into that general ed setting. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Okay, perfect. And be looking, looking at the student's IEP and saying, how can I make progress toward that IEP goal within the context of what the entire class is doing? Um, as opposed to this student needs to master this particular material in order to be allowed in. So Pat, can you give an example of kind of an access point? I'm wondering if you can think about Mark, um, your son, in terms of how he accesses the content currently. Sure. Yeah, so Mark's a, a person with a cognitive disability, um, and mm -hmm. he's in a fully included in a seventh grade class. So the class was learning about uh, the 13 colonies. Okay. And the other students were certainly expected to know quite a bit of information about the economic differences between the colonies and political differences and the reasons why the different colonies were formed. Mm -hmm. um, Mark, we had a map for him with blanks where the colonies were. And the expectation for Mark is that we, he could identify the location of the colony on the map mm -hmm. and be able to spell the name of the, the colony because that's consistent with his IEP goals. So he made a presentation about that in class, nice. just as his peers did. Yep. He was asked questions, hey, anybody know where Massachusetts is? Uh -huh. And he raised his hand and identified it correctly on the map. So he was fully participating in the life of his seventh grade social studies class and making meaningful progress toward his IEP goals within that context. Perfect. Thank you. Another myth that folks sometimes say is that removal is appropriate if the student would make better progress in a segregated setting. So I'll use the example of life skills. People are often talking to me about, boy, I really want this student to learn life skills. It's usually the school staff, interestingly enough, that's talking about wanting the student to learn life skills. So talk about that idea. Right, so legally speaking, although the Committee on Special Education um, has to weigh the benefits of various settings, if the student can make meaningful progress in a general education setting, Legally, that's the appropriate setting. Even if the school staff believes that, you know what, in their view, um, the student might learn something more meaningful for them in a self-contained setting. So what I'll get a lot is, okay, fine, it's possible for us to support the student in general education, but we're not teaching life skills here. Mm -hmm, right. And like you mentioned, and what they really need is to learn money and Time. Tying shoes and yeah. time and very practical skills and kind of the content they would get in a general education class is not going to be meaningful to them in their life. That's one argument I hear. The other would be, look, things are going to be happening so far above the student. They're going to require so much support in a general education setting. If we put them in a slower paced environment where instruction was more at their level, 
they would be able to demonstrate more independence mm -hmm. because they would be on a, a level closer to their peers. Right. So I have some substantive problems with those arguments on the <laughs> merits, and I'm guessing you do too. Yes. Um, but legally speaking, so if you as a parent are not persuaded by the merits of those arguments, and again, I think there are reasons why you should doubt those arguments, mm -hmm. but legally speaking, if the student can make meaningful educational progress in general education with supports and services, that is the legally appropriate placement. Even if the school believes the student would make more or better progress somewhere else, mm -hmm. um, the case law says, hey, look, Congress kind of took that decision away and made that decision by creating the presumption in favor of inclusion. And if the school district has not overcome that presumption in favor of inclusion, the law says that's where the student should be, mm -hmm. even if the school is convinced that some other place might be, quote unquote, better for the student. Thank you. So Pat, even though I when I introduced this topic, I said we'll talk about the 10 myths. What I'm realizing is today we'll just do five and then we'll do a second podcast about the next five. Does that sound okay? Sounds great. Okay. So the fifth one is one that we hear a lot. And it's if a child has disruptive behavior, then they should be removed. So this concept of, you know, if the child disrupts the learning environment at all, we need to think about a different learning environment. Can you talk about that myth? Sure, so perfect behavior is not a prerequisite for inclusion. Um, the law says that the student's behavior has to be significantly disruptive to the other students in order to justify removal. Hmm. Uh, two sort of follow-up things on that. One is, in my experience anyway, the level of disruption is often a function of how well the school staff has explained the student's need for support to their peers. In other words, lots of things are distractible to students in a classroom. Sure. It's about how we address it as adults and explaining, hey, look, here are some things that might happen. Here are some supports that might be needed during the course of the day, and that's okay. That's part of what is going on here. That's part number one. Mm -hmm. Part number two is there is a very robust process under the law that schools are required to follow before they remove a student for disruptive behavior. They're required to conduct what's called a functional behavioral assessment, um, which is a, a data-driven uh, assessment of the student's behavior, data collection, trying to come up with an understanding of what function this behavior is serving. Mm -hmm. And then they must develop a behavior intervention plan and implement that with fidelity over a reasonable period of time. So removal based on behavior, um, again, has to be significantly disruptive behavior. And the conversation about removal should only begin after we've gone through that process of a functional behavioral assessment and a behavior intervention plan, and then considered whether the student's needs can be appropriately met in the setting that they're in. Okay, so someone can't say the student is being disruptive, we're gonna consider another placement. But Many steps have to be in place prior to a new placement even being considered. Absolutely, I, I can't tell you how many times I've been in meetings and we're talking yeah. about an alternative placement and I'm saying, whoa, whoa, where's the FBA? Where's the behavior plan? You know, What, are, what, what have we done to help support the student where they are before we decide on, on removal? Great. So I want to say thank you for these top five myths. And if you join us in our next podcast, we'll be talking about five more myths of special education with Pat Radel. Thanks, Pat. Thank you.